As far as I'm concerned, as long as that same respect and recognition is not shown toward every one of our people in this country, it doesn't exist for me. And during the few moments that we have left, we want to have just an off-the-cuff chat between you and me, us. We want to talk right down to earth in a language that everybody here can easily understand. Today, once again, I know, I know, I know, I say this every single episode, but I am ex- super excited for this one. Our guest today actually began one of her lectures by quoting three individuals. She quoted the Prophet Muhammad, she quoted Amika Cabral, and she quoted Fannie Lou Hamer for reflection and mediation. And likewise, in similar fashion, I want to quote Prophet Muhammad today, in which he says, Man lam nas, lam which means in Arabic, in English, sorry, whoever does not thank the people has not thanked God. And the reason why I start today with, the, with those words, because I just want to thank my guest for, it's very rare you find people who challenge all the assumptions in which you once held. And I like to attach myself to her intellectual, a part of her intellectualism. So thank you so much, Dr. Joy, for joining me today. And I also have with me Khadija Deej, who's been on the show before, who you all love. Welcome to you both. <laughs> thank you for having us. We can hear you perfectly. Thanks for joining us once again. We're going to go straight into it. We often hear about, you know, our guerrilla intellectual, Walter Rodney. So the question I'm going to go straight into is, is there a place for academics in the revolutionary struggle? <laughs> yes, because you've already stated the mandate, right? Whoever finds the people finds God. And revolutionary struggle is, is spirit-filled and godly, as I know there are different manifestations of deity. But, you know, a day job is a day job. Like, if there's a place for people who garden and farm, if there's a place for people who mend the roads, if there's a place for the people who soothe the elder and the sick and dying, then there's a place for us as long as our day jobs don't become a form of deification. I guess. Wow. (laughs) Khadija, do you want to have some reflection on that or ask a question? I love that sentiment because I think a lot of the time when I talk to people about sort of radical politics, when I talk to my students, they often get this deep sense of dread, you know, like, well, what's my place in this? What what can I do? And I always say, you know, there's a there's space for everyone in the revolutionary sort of like process. It's about finding where you fit in. It's about finding how you can resist. And I think just that statement from Dr. Joy is just so potent in, in reminding us exactly that. There is space for so many different types of, of people than there's space for intellectuals, I think. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, I don't want to just make this a topic of controversy, uh, episode of controversy, but I have to ask because it was, it was more so Khadija, I think it's going to be more relevant to you, but I was just, <laughs> I was like, okay, this is interesting. When Dr. Joy, you said you no longer call yourself a black feminist and I've shared it amongst a lot of black feminists who, who I'm in community with and they were a bit taken back as well. So I'd love to unpack that further with you if possible. Got a bit of feedback there. Please carry on. Yeah. So no insult to anyone who's found their path and comfort and intellectual capacity through Black feminism. But I would say, as you know, having walked those roads for decades, I've found the limitations, you know, where the road leads nowhere that I currently want to go, or it looks like it's leading me back into a circle. I say that based on my experience in the U.S., right? 
And I say that because the United States, my understanding of it is it presents as an imperial formation. It's accumulated for its democracy through chattel slavery and genocide, right? And its feminism increasingly takes on the tenor of state feminism because that's where power accrues in the U.S. Under capitalism, under forms of neo-imperialism, neoliberalism, and I'm not quite sure what neo-imperialism is, but if it exists, I'm sure the U.S. will like develop it. <laughs> so it's this way in which embedded in empire, we are paid to conform to state edicts and preferences, or we are punished when we do not. I do not see how Black feminism escapes that kind of disciplinary regime unless it could actually embed in communities. And that is not what the academy does. It does not embed within working class or struggling or militant communities. It embeds in structure. So if it's a large university research one, and I'm talking about the elites, I know there are people who teach four, four, four or five classes in the sectors where I've been privileged and conflicted in teaching these zones, right? It's It's been in the elite level. And it's the elites who drive the definitional norms of of Black struggle because they have the money, they have the stature, the position, and they have the book contracts, and they have the book prizes, and they get the Zoom talks, blah, 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 blah. It doesn't mean that in our regular lives or our lives outside of the academy, language and culture are not created. It just means that when it's disseminated through industries, book industries, lecture industries, academic conferences, it is bourgeois or petty bourgeois black feminism that dominates. And I'll give you an example. Think of the anniversaries of the anniversary of the Kambahi Collective, mm-hmm. right? Which has been talked about a lot, and rightly so, because it's it's really important, the Kambahi River Collective. But in the origin story which is the material conditions under which this collective and this manifesto and the writing about identity politics embedded in progressive politics, right? Needed the origin story. So in the origin story, it was violence and murder of Black girls and women that was a catalyst for the Gabahi River Collective. But in the current reiterations of it, that origin in violence, right? Anti-Black, anti-female, anti-sex worker or underground economy, if the, the girls and teens were surviving by working in these precarious industries, that origin story becomes diminished, if not disappeared. So mm-hmm. our lives in the United States and the Americas are determined will to survive captivity and predatory violence, not coming from just rogue entities, but from the state itself. When I theorize Black feminism to the point of anthologizing the Black feminist reader with a colleague or editing the Angela Davis reader, that was decades ago. But the terror continued to unfold. And Black feminism became, in some ways, a commodity in academia, not on the forefront of struggle against the terror. So when I shift to the captive maternal, it's because I'm seeking something. 
that I cannot find in conventional Black feminism. Fairly, or to be more fair, I should speak of Black feminism in plurality, the way I speak of abolitionism. But I defer to the singular definition shaped by elites, maybe out of laziness. Mm. Could you have some reflection upon that? I've got lots of thoughts. <laughs> I've got lots of, of thoughts because obviously, like, to ground ourselves in the context of what Black feminism means in the, in the UK, it has a specific genealogy too, but a lot of our inspiration comes from the Black feminisms of the US. And actually, you know, Mamadou, we had this conversation. I've been, since reading actually Dr. Joy, Dr. Joy James's work, been more intentional about distinguishing myself from other types of Black feminisms. Because again, I come up against the exact tension that, that Dr. Dr. James mentions, where I'm seeing this thing that I've always thought of because I got my black feminism from the works of Claudia Jones, from the works of, of Angela. I'm now seeing this sort of mobilization of, of, of black feminism in these very sort of commodified and transactional ways. And, I'm, and, it's, and it's unsettling me. In the UK, we don't have the potency of sort of black feminism within the academy the way it exists in the US. But what we're seeing actually is a far more crude interaction of black feminism, which has become this very, you know, I call it, you know, white liberal feminism in black faces. A very transactional thing where we're seeing the black feminist case be made, not for radical politics, not for abolition, not for ending carcerality, not for decoloniality and all these other critical ways which we've seen historically um, other forms of feminism mobilise, but we're seeing it become about representation, right? We're seeing it become about a particular type of reformism that not only wants to see itself represented within the state, but also wants to see itself paid, right? Paid and given money and given, you know, opportunity <laughs> you hear it? Cash and up a black woman. Cash up a black woman, right? For her labour. And I'm like, what the hell does that mean? What does that hell I mean, does that mean? How is that radical? That's so brilliantly stated. I mean, but I go back to capital and it's what I was trying to write in the Versa blog earlier this month, right? Like I give the example of electoral, you know, presidential elections, right, in the US, a four-year cycle of sucking up all political organizing to elect one of the parties, it's a duopoly system anyway. And neither of them is progressive. So it's always fear-based, like you just don't want the proto-fascists in. But then you end up with the liberals or neoliberals who will still do AFRICOM and drone strikes and have starving babies and pollute water in Flint, Michigan, and put Haitians and Cameroonian and Africans in ice camps and deport them at disproportionate rates because people think all the detention children who are worth saving are brown and not black. Right. Mm. So if you look at the level of betrayal, it is not based on chaos. It is based on engineering. So if you want to get paid under an imperial state, you know, and I will say over and over again until my last days. Yeah, I voted for Obama, but he turned out to be the first black imperial president. So I don't vote for imperial presidents anymore unless it's like, oh, here's the proto-fascist and what am I supposed to do? But if those are the choices of black women, if this is what is on the menu, by default, you will deflect to state politics. And hence, you know, I have no shade against her, but the celebratory we elected Kamala Harris, well, it echoes we elected Barack Obama. So what did black people get from that? 
You get black enablers for an imperial state built on white supremacy, black enslavement, genocide against blacks and indigenous, and constant accumulation, as well as interventions around the globe to destabilize every liberation movement that pops up. Now, why would black feminism be spared if it were actually a liberation movement? It is spared and leveraged because it is not. If it's your personal liberation, fine. But if you understand power within the definitional norms of an imperial racist rapist state, then you get paid by the rapist. That's just how it works. I wish I could say it in a nicer way, but I'm sorry. I'm too old. That is, is, no, I think it's important, right? Because the crudeness through which we're seeing this new, or this black feminist politics, which works as an agent of the state be mobilized, needs to be understood in those terms. I think people need to reckon with the realities of exactly what they're buying into, the realities of what exactly they're doing. And it reminds me of, Mamadou, if you remember a few, a month or so ago, where the British states actually mentioned that they would be criminalizing mm-hmm. fathers who did not pay child that. support by taking away their passport. And so I reacted. I said, that's a, like, and, and well, initially I saw lots of reactions from many sort of people who claimed themselves to be black feminists who were inspired by the works of people like Bell Hooks, saying how this was a great achievement and how, like, you know, we used to lock up the deadbeats. And I was like, this is a horrific idea. Anytime the state gets to mobilize in these kinds of ways, anywhere, anytime the state gets to make the case that it can remove people's passports, when we've just had the case of Windrush, not just a few years ago, we know who it's specifically targeting. And somehow, you know, that made me the villain of the week on Twitter. Yeah. But I thought it was, that was the thing, I think the, the sort of crucial moment I reached where I was like, holy hell, what is this? What is this thing that's called black feminism? Because this is, this is actual violence now, right? This is, this is scary. This is terrifying. This isn't just commodity. This is now actually actively working as a border force agent on behalf of the state. That's not what we should be doing. That's that's not going to save us. No, exactly. And, and and Dr. Joy, I mean, something that rings in my head a lot of the time is you said you don't believe that the state will fund its own you know, demise or its own bringing down of this itself. And I feel like when we have our movements, a lot of the time, whether it be the black feminists or quote unquote pan-Africanists who are culturally pan-African but not material as, as as understood materially you know i won't say any names i don't want to throw in a shade on anybody particularly <laughs> but, but you know when they say the pan-africanists who are culturally pan-africans but they say you know they will take money from the state and they will be aligned to this day and i'm thinking mm, yeah this isn't really it and i'm often you know what dr joy says often rings in my head my next kind of question and kind of pivoting away just to kind of give a context right now just to give context and i think it's very there is the largest union election right now taking place in the UK with approximate members of 1.2 million people. The, for greater, greater context, our Home Secretary, who has been probably enacted some of the most racist immigration policies we've seen, I've seen probably in living memory anyway. Um, I'm born in 93, so it's not been that long, <laughs> but in, living, in my living memory. And, you know, she's a, a woman of South Asian descent. She's an Indian from daughter of Indian immigrants. And she's all too happy in playing the role. I mean, she's spoken down on BLM movements and she's, you know, directly instituted legislation that penalizes BLM protesters, targeting them anyway. And then, so the reason why I'm asking this question, my question will be, how do we develop a language in that we can criticize these people, but then, you know, we, we get a pushback because, oh, people of color. 
And you kind of understand because right-wing folk, they do weaponize identity politics. But what happened is the general secretary who's running for election, sorry, who's running for election to become general secretary of this union, he's a white man, a a middle-aged white man. And he said, oh, we should deport Pretty Patel, our home secretary. And then that left, I mean, me and Khadija were fine. We're like, yep, deport her. <laughs> but then you had um, a lot of, some black people who are, you know, who in my circles as well would say things like, oh, he can't say that. He's a white man. So he, he had to apologize. He said, all I'm saying is that I hope she gets subjected to the same nasty uh, policies she kind of puts some people of color. But even black people were saying, no, 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 no. We agree with you. But you can't say that. And it kind of made me think of the kind of conversation you get around Laurie, Laurie Lightfoot as well. When people criticise her, oh, but she's a black woman, you can't really criticise her. So I kind mm. of wanted your kind of response. Or your yeah. Thoughts. How do we develop a language? We just, we just keep it plain. I mean, I worked <laughs> with these wonderful black mothers in Chicago, Shapiro Wells and Dorothy Holmes, who lost their sons to Chicago police violence, right? And I've worked with them like in the States, but also Calais, Columbia, you know, in, in different formations, bringing them to campus. They're, they're clear about Lori Lightfoot. Yeah. They're like, you know, look, your opposition is your opposition. I don't care what shade or what kind of pumps they wear, right? Opposition is opposition. And so these ways of this protective language, almost like ther- therapeutic language, in the middle of annihilations of, you know, as forms or taking forms in deportations, incarceration, disposability, right? The COVID, 600,000 deaths in the United States. We were supposed to have money and competency. Well, we have money, but the competency was never for poor people. I'll use the phrase people of color, but disproportionately, you know, it was in every person called a person of color who is most vulnerable, not only to COVID, but as, you know, Carol Anderson talks about in her book on the Second Amendment and guns, but the violence of white supremacy basically being shot by cops and white, you know, terrorists. Like our underground terrorism is above ground now. And you know, we have the most guns per capita than anybody on the planet. Mm-hmm. And pretty much we know who's stocking those guns, right? Mm-hmm. And that the, the the police state, to the extent, I mean, would I sign on to a police state? I don't know. I pay taxes, so literally, yeah. But, like, why don't you start looking for white supremacist terrorists? That's not their thing. They will mm-hmm. define black activists as identity extremists, create bogus FBI files on them, and they just hunt them. Your ally is whoever materially shows up. It is not who looks like you. Because yeah. if the state has longevity, it knows how to have proxy soldiers. Like if, if the thing is to have, you can't critique a black lesbian, then Lori Lightfoot, who is pro-police, and I believe if I understand correctly, a former prosecutor, then she gets a pass. And like, that's not even strategic. And that's not dealing with material conditions. That's dealing with an ideology that's fabricating false coalitions that don't withstand water if you pour on these coalitions because they're as fragile as as thin paper, right? And I think that over the decades, this has grown. And yes, because I've been around long enough as a feminist, I'll call it the backing of bourgeois U.S. feminism comes in part from this foundation. And people like Gloria Steinem, who historically, and I'm a scholar, so I don't make stuff up, historically <laughs> relied 
with the CIA. Why is the CIA sending somebody to even roll with women of color, feminists, whatever you call it? Because women can also, like historically in the U.S., um, there were white women who owned black enslaved people. Women can also buttress and support the state. There is no abstract patriarchy when you get to the real nitty gritty of how it breaks, power breaks down. Amy Barrett Comey, I believe that's the new Supreme Court justice or like what's new, but that Trump yeah. put on with Kavanaugh and yes. others is as right wing as a woman and mother as any of the men on the Supreme Court. They will eviscerate rights, right? And there are always opportunists. You notice that Clarence Thomas is on the Supreme Court and he's black. So if you think there's black solidarity writ large, then you're not operational in the material world. If you think there's female solidarity writ large, then you're not operational in the material world. If you remember how Cabral and Patrice Lumumba were set up for assassination, the yeah. Europeans had a role and the U.S., of course, but I believe there were black people who pulled the trigger. So everybody oh, is not your friend in a liberation struggle if you plan to actually participate in one. If you want to accumulate networks, then you can pretend like everybody's your friend. <laughs> That's so potent and important. And I'm, I'm even thinking about Sankara, you know. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay, this is quite maybe another pivot then. When we're speaking about, you know, camaraderie and solidarity and multiracial solidarity. I think of all the lecture speakers and academics I, I, I follow quite in, intensely, I think probably Dr. Joy, you're probably the most, probably the one that's the most, has the most nice things to say about Afro-pessimism. Okay. <laughs> uh, yes, I'm going there. Yes, you I'm... didn't warn me about this. <laughs> ah, this is funny because, you know, I mean, sometimes I think, I mean, they're like, oh, she's so strident. Can she lower her voice to change her tone? Whatever. But here's how I see the Afro-pessimists, right? And I say I'm not one. But, and you know, in backstory, yeah, I mean, I invited the architects to Brown University when they're graduate students. And they were in the same panel with uh, Sophia Bukhari, who had been in Black Panther Party, who had gone underground because COINTELPRO and the FBI were killing Black militants, whose bodyguards were murdered, who was sent to prison for eight years and had a forced hysterectomy. So... I'm, my snapshot is if Sevilla Pukari, who has transitioned and never got enough support to stay on the planet longer, can sit between the two architects of Afro-pessimism at Brown University, which is like the epitome of elite, you know, white bourgeoisie, yeah. and say, Frank Wilderson said this, Jared Sexton says that, this is what it means on the ground. Like, if it has relevance to her, why would I not spend time to look at it to see if it had relevance to me? Look, mm -hmm. I've said in the Verso piece or elsewhere, maybe it was a Black Feminist Futures, that any line of critical thinking that creates an avenue as broad as a boulevard or as slim as a crack in concrete that allows Black people and people under siege to think more rapidly and radically, I will entertain and wrestle with that thought. What I see going on now are broadsides. And I also see real estate development because that comes with the academy. Yeah, and also exactly. with a certain kind of intellectualism, like 
my territory is racism. Now you're talking anti-blackness that cuts into my portfolio because I want people to think about multicultural racism where we have a rainbow thing, not in the sense that Fred Hampton talked about the rainbow, but in a more like liberal, neoliberal, you know, collective that seeks reforms, right? And other people will say, this is not reformable. So we need to entertain all forms of thought that would allow us to not just have dreams about another world, but strategy sessions, security apparatus, right? Mm -hmm. And think tanks that would allow us to go forward in wrestling for that other world or possibility or no world. So I, I, I want to use my time productively. And if I'm watching a forum, I'll just say it because, you know, like I said, I'm tired of like mincing words. If I'm watching a forum on Haymarket and it's supposed to be about fascism and so people start taking slaps at Afro-pessimism, I did write in the Q&A or chat, if we're serious about a struggle or struggles around imperialism, proto-fascism, why do we have time for these broadsides or slaps at AP? I don't get it. Like, what do we benefit, right? Collectively, it is like, there are all these variations of Marxism. There are these variations of feminism, right? Or womanism, or for me, the captive maternal. There are these variations of what it means to be anti-fascist. There are variations on anti-blackness. I would think it would be required if we truly want it to be as ethical as possible, that we keep an open mind and that we really interrogate closely. I'm not looking for like, you know, sheep, but that we interrogate the queries or the challenges that are put on the table, that we use what is actually useful, but we don't waste our time attacking academic theories or engaging in academic turf wars. That's really interesting. Yeah, no, it's really interesting. And I think it offers me a level of clarity. I think part of the problem in how we see sort of engagements with sort of Afro-pessimism and other sort of theoretical sort of analysis of, of blackness is that they often become quite dogmatic. And that's the thing that I've been trying to be really careful about, viewing a theory as a means to offer me an analysis of the world, giving me tools that I then mobilize, that I then use to think through the sort of contradictions and antagonisms that I'm, you know, I'm seeing, especially within my community of Black people, and and I think part of the academy, I think, tricks us into these dogmatic sort of, you know, iterations of our, our analysis and our theories. It, it positions things as oppositional that aren't always oppositional, right? I spent most of last year, and I call myself a recovering Marxist because I spent most of last year <laughs> getting really sort of deep into a lot of Afro pessimist theory, and it sang to me, right? It sang to me. It called me. It's you know, very beautifully articulated some of the sort of tensions that I had, but could not articulate because, you know, often in the sort of Marxist tradition, we favor the material analysis and don't see to tend to focus on the, the things that I'm interested in, right? The things I do in my research, the desire, the libidinal economy, the sort of complexities of the psychoeffective, what blackness means, how blackness is received and experienced, not only in its material sort of realities, but actually also what does it mean to the psyche? What does it mean to how we think through our lives? And, and interestingly enough, Afro-pessimism offers those answers, right? It offers not necessarily answers, but it offers us a particular 
sort of story a particular genealogy of mm. these types of un, you know of, of these types of understandings of the specificities and the the particular intricacies of anti-blackness and all that to say i think a lot of the way we see people engage especially online um and i found you know one of my really best friends is a sort of marxist and i've watched watched them engage with Afro-pessimists online on Twitter, and then I'd watch them engage Afro-pessimists in a room, actually having a conversation. And the initial sort of conversation on Twitter was really antagonistic. It was, you know, quite quite terrible. But the in-person conversation was such a beautiful moment for education. It was on Clubhouse. The room got packed with, full of people. I recorded it. I took notes. There were so many people who left that with so much more sort of fruitful understanding, fruitful education than would have been able to receive it if we had just thought of these two theories, these two analyses as completely oppositional. So that, that's kind of my perspective on Afro-pessimism. And I obviously have particular antagonisms with Afro-pessimism, right? And I think my antagonisms come from a place of, well, there's a particular sort of complexity to how I think about race as a sort of historical you know, technology, about racial capitalism. But it doesn't feel right for me in many cases to essentialize a specific mobilization of anti-Black racism and distinguish it as so 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 consequentially different to other forms of racism that we are constantly in the um, the position of the subjected, right? I don't like that because again, I feel like when we look at analysis of blackness in the imperial core, a lot of us have to take somewhat, you know, ownership of the fact that by virtue of us existing within these empires, we have a lot less in common with the black in you know West Africa the black, you know, cash cropper, farmhand, and actually the black mm-hmm. cash cropper, farmhand, has a lot more in common with the South Asian Bengali woman who is working, you know, in factories, et cetera, et cetera. And that's my particular tension. And I think also to claim, oh, go ahead, Dr. Joy. No, no, I think there's important distinctions, right? And and moments of solidarity. I mean, when you were speaking, I mean, you, you I agree with what you're saying, but I also want to clarify at least what I'm trying to say. We live our experiences <laughs> as they're meted out within a particular zone. And we're, there's no pride about this, but I will go back to what I said before. We live within an imperial zone that pretty much the liberation movements that we would love as an expression of the people and as expression for those of us who believe in deity of our faith, they're largely trashed by the folks we pay our taxes for. So we live within the, those contradictions, right? We don't live yeah. as laborers in other zones in the so-called global South or as fisher people or watching water dry up and desert for, you know, deserts just grow. We don't live in those zones, but we live in a particular kind of hell. Yes, with shopping, privilege, with shopping privileges, right? Absolutely. For those of us who've decided I don't need to buy any more stuff. There is a trend, and I can't speak for all Afro-pessimism or everybody who says they're Afro-pessimist. I'm just speaking for the small crew that I know began the designs of it, right? Their commitment came from teaching in maximum security prisons, following what the incarcerated wanted to do, then being kicked out of the prisons, unlike other abolitionists who can stay. Because they come in following the rules. Have proximity to war zones. However they get defined, but in our understanding, the way in which the imperial state organizes and does proxy war. Yeah. Right? So under these conditions, we do not know everything. 
But under these conditions, we know some things. And what some of us know is that AP has value, just as Marxism does, and just as Black feminism did, and also trans, LGBTQ theory, environmental theory, children's rights, etc. This The complexity that I see now is I see a struggle over hegemony, ideological yes. hegemony or definitional norm. Mm-hmm. I don't think AP folks I know are trying to win that battle because they never publicly fight back when they're attacked. So if I'm like having grown up in a military family and I'm like, oh, this is a war game. Who's, who's paying for it? What are the entry points? What are the pressure points? Why is like, why did you just napalm everything, right? Like there's nothing in it, nothing worth it, da, da, da. And the APers I know aren't going to join in that battle. So I'm wondering why yeah. the hell is anybody else in it? Gosh, so much to think through. <laughs> I know. I'm just like, <laughs> that was like no, a mic drop. On, on that point, that is exactly sort of like the complexity that I love about AP, right? I love how it stretches me to think beyond the confines of reforming a, a world that, that is irreformable, right? And I think there's something about it that causes a deep sense of anxiety in me, whilst also stimulating me to, to think through these complexities, think through these, you know, positions in which I occupy and in which Black people globally occupy far more than I would have had I just been a sort of, you know, run of the no Marxist. You know, what AP offered to me in terms of pushing my thought was very, very important. Absolutely. Absolutely. My last kind of question is, you often quote Amika Cabral and say, you know, return to the mm-hmm. source. Could you just unpack that a bit further on what that means exactly? Yeah, I mean, so the PDF is online, so everybody will know best for themselves what it means to them and their communities. Mm-hmm. But I was years ago told from a friend of mine who was in the Black Panther Party, and their brother ended up in the underground and being caught by the police and tortured and doing eight years. So I always listen to activists. I don't say they're like my prophets, but when they tell me to go read something, I go read something. So it was mm. Charlene Mitchell who mentored Angela Davis into the Communist Party, the Che Lumumba aspect of it, which is the all-Black formation, so it could be more relevant to Black militancy right in California. When she told me years ago to go to the Schomburg Library in Harlem and read all the memoirs of you, of W.B. Du Bois on the Talented Tenth and the betrayals of the Black elite, right? That structural betrayals, right? Just because structure directs you towards conformity, you know, rather than rebellion, I did what she told me to do, and I read, and then that became transcending the Talented Tenth. I did what my Panther friend told me to do, and Cabral became a comfort and a catalyst. Like, what is the source? It's like, I can't speak from it, but I know I've seen it in material reality. I know from decades ago when I went to the International Women's Gathering at Nairobi, Kenya for the UN Decade on Women, right? That I stayed in the compound of the WIDF, the Women's International Democratic Federation that formed in 1945 as an international anti-fascist organization. And I believe like India said no in terms of hosting them, but China said yes. And so decades later and 85, so 40 years later, I'm in this compound with women freedom fighters from all over the world because this is still 
you know, it's ending, but, you know, the formal Cold War against the Soviets, who were not all noble or nice, but they did fund certain kind of movements, right? And so at that site, I saw a different kind of source. I saw international women, including women who'd been guerrilla fighters who who morphed into diplomats once their nations, you know, assumed some stability. The ANC Swapo women were still in the mix, the PLO women, et cetera. We had, you know, these African guards who were kind, you know, and smiled and greeted you, but they had assault weapons, presumably to keep all the women in that compound alive, right? And so what is the source? The source is anything that struggles against fascism. The source is anything that feeds babies. The source is anything that comforts the ill and ailing. Mm. The source is not structured by academia, corporations, nonprofits, think tanks, right? Mm. The CIA, the democratic governments, which, you know, accumulate still through expropriation and intimidation. So for me, through Cabral, I could see a kind of activism that I would never have participated in when I'm not from Guinea-Bissau, I'm not from Cape Verde, right? But I thought I could hear when I read him, him speak about a culture that is based on revolutionary love, on the need to survive, and the need to have honor and dignity in that survival, right? And so when he writes that they freed three quarters of the countryside, but not the cities, because that's where the petty bourgeoisie are, the bourgeoisie, the colonial management team, et cetera, I thought I understood that there were parallels in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And at a recent forum on the Black Feminist Futures, when people were talking intramural and quoting Hortense Spellers, and they weren't necessarily, I don't believe, Afro-pessimists, but this is the language of the academy. And as a political theorist, I don't really pay attention that much because I'm looking for the source. I said I was a seeker. I didn't say I had the answers. I just said I was continuing to look, and not for the intramural, because I understand their betrayals inside of Mm. Black formations, class betrayals, ideological betrayals, opportunism. But a seeker who would try to recognize the source, if it appears and when it appears in its inevitability, and deal with the demands that people in struggle make. And having organized across, I understand my contributions, but also my contradictions. But the thing I think is really important, we don't have any ground rules for integrity for the encounter. Like. I don't know what disciplines us anymore. I mean, there have been so many betrayals Mm. for so many decades and centuries. I don't even know how we would trust each other to mobilize. But I still think we continue to do it. I know we continue to do it. So there must be some kind of catalyst, spark, energy, or maybe we're just all seekers. And if that's the case, that's good enough for me. Khadija, do you have any questions or should I leave it there? <laughs> Ooh, no, I think that's a potent place to, to leave it. And I'm, But I've got so much to think about. And, and this is exactly what I love. And I, I just love that articulation because that's, even with my students, even with the people I engage with, I always tell them that I'm not, I'm not trying to have the answers. I'm just trying to have the right questions. And mm. I think for so much, so many of us, that that is an important sort of way of doing criticality, a way of engaging in, in, in intellectual thought that can push for more of a sort of radicalism of the future. 
I guess I have one question and it's, and it's kind of a serious question, but also not. Is there any hope for, for black feminism, do you think? Is there <laughs> any way we can, we, can, we can resolve it, return it, reclaim it, something? Yeah, I would like to think that captive maternal is a form of black feminism, even though, okay, so now you're, make, you're forcing me to say that right in public. You were so cruel. It's what I said when you were trying to get me on the digital platform. But I'm sure you're on a mission, so congrats that you're efficient. Okay, so I would say that I try not to betray sisterin or brethren, but I will critique everything. And that is my job. I'm not here as they say a prophet, what am I saying? No, my job is an analyst. So if I move to the zone of the captive maternal, it's because, as I said, I am seeking clarity, commitment, and relevance to the extent that state feminism has gentrified Black feminism, it cannot be held. It is a betrayal if state feminism has entered and started to redesign Black feminism. Everybody who's listening to y'all are like y'all. Y'all are brilliant. Y'all are young. You know how to figure stuff out. You're going to figure it out. The only thing I can say is when I moved to the captive maternal is because I saw agendered, non-gender, diverse genders love people to the point of sacrifice and to the point of faltering and still not have the capacity to save what we want to save. So the stages, right? The celebratory conflicted caretaker who makes your kid go to the private white school and you know your kid's going to be traumatized, but you know, you figure out the percentage and compare it with the kid going to the under resourced school with the metal detectors and the cops in it. And that's a form of trauma too. It's a bargain on that first level. The second level, we're going to protest, right? We're going to throw down and say, you know, this is, you know, violation of our human rights. This is anniversary of recharge genocide, which was written in 1951. This is a violation of civil rights. This is a violation of, you know, just list the rights and the rights, right? The third is like the movement, right? As as we're going from these protests to organizing, we're not just mobilizers, but we're organizers. So we can create a movement, surprise the predators and take territory, right? And then, you know, the Maronage, which I've said about Attica prison. This is the 50th anniversary of the Attica rebellion and violent suppression. When they created a Maroon camp inside the prison walls, educational, right, medic, food distribution, culture, they were singing to themselves, and they did not all identify as men. They were classified as such by the state. That's what I mean by diverse genders. That was a maroon camp. Educational, you talk to the New York Times, you read the petition of our rights, you tell them why we can't be treated as slaves anymore. And from that stage of the maroon, and you all know about maroons, right? Mm -hmm. New York Governor Nelson Rockefeller, after consultation with President Richard Nixon, called in the National Guard that used military surplus from Vietnam to address a human rights struggle as a war zone. And they shot through white guards to kill black rebels. 
And once they retook the prison from the Maroons, right, they continued to torture and allegedly murder those people who had resisted. So what's the stage after that? What is the stage of a veteran survivor or the stage of a betrayer? And what is the stage of the ancestor that comes after that? I have no idea. But the captive maternal for me is an attempt to shake off bourgeois shackles and white imperialism in filtering, right? Filtering into our movements and to watch how we move through time and space. I'm go- <laughs> Thank you so much. This is a really good point to end up. <laughs> yeah, I, I thought the one I'm going to do my. <laughs> well, no, I'm, I'm Thank you so much. Like, it's given me so much to think about, even about my research. Yeah, like I'm, I'm flawed. And I'm flawed because in my research, Lacan has this obviously different discourses, which he, he sort of ascribes to the subjective position and the analyst position being the one that we, we should all get to. That's the point at which we reach a particular type of clarity and not only acknowledging the violence of the world, not only acknowledging the sort of limited nature in which we do this work, but also committing to do that work anyway. And what does that mean? And I'm literally just, I'm leaving this with a whole thesis chapter yes. of, <laughs> of stuff to write on the Captain Maternal as an analyst position. So thank, thank, you, so much, thank you both and stay well. Okay. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you so much, Dr. Jordan. The Malcolm Effect. This has been the Malcolm Effect with Mama Do. Until next time, take care.